Hello, mainly fans. Welcome to our new listeners from Guam and Giahoich to those of you joining us from Ireland. Bienvenidos a todos to our fans in Mexico. Plenty of our fans in the States are headed to spend time with family, maybe at grandmother's house this Thanksgiving. Hopefully, the episode we're bringing to you has nothing to do with that family gathering. If it does, that means Gran is in the clan. That would be the Ku Klux Klan, or the Invisible Empire, an organization that has been sadly visible in various forms throughout American history. To many people, the KKK is associated with certain times and certain places. Rarely does Maine during the Roaring Twenties top the list. But during that iconic decade, the Klan was in fact a nationwide phenomenon. In certain ways, as much a part of the country's fabric as the Ford Model T, the bobbed haircut, and jazz. But why were so many Mainers willing to let the Klan wield influence even in such matters as structuring Portland's city government. What was the appeal? Who joined? Who resisted? And why did the Klan fall apart with the same speed that it seemed to pop up? I'm joined by two distinguished guests today to help us take a look under the hood. So let's do this. My guests today are Ashley Johnson Bavery, who teaches 20th century U.S. history at Eastern Michigan University, and Thomas McMillan, a grad student of labor and working class history at Concordia University. Ashley, Tom, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this a lot. So uh, I wanted to start with Ashley. Your calling card in many respects of your earlier scholarship has been talking about phenomena that people associate with Southern U.S. affairs, but actually saying, hey, it happens in the Northern U.S. as well, specifically illegal immigration and the Border Patrol. But today we're talking about the Klan, what historians call the second Ku Klux Klan, specifically in Maine and Northern New England and how it, it interacted with other non-direct clan affiliated concerns. Uh, but to get us started, I think many of our listeners might be surprised to learn there were multiple clans. Could you talk a bit about the origins of the original Ku Klux Klan and then how the second clan emerged and how it differed? Yes, great. That's a great question and important to kind of distinguish the difference between uh, these different Ku Klux Klans, because they do operate differently and they have different uh, things they're trying to do. So the first clan was probably what you imagine when you think of the Ku Klux Klan. It's the uh, post-Civil War group that originates in the South, and they're focused on kind of vigilante terrorism, they're burning crosses, they're lynching African Americans across the South, uh, basically trying to get them back in line. They're uh, lynching and terrorizing these recently freed slaves and trying to make sure and ensure 
kind of a racial uh, hierarchies in the South. So they're focused exclusively or almost exclusively on African-Americans. That's their main focus uh, in the South. And it's the Klan, I believe, in that time period would the members would have been from all ranks of uh, white society at that time, uh, which uh, the second clan uh, looks a little bit different than that. So do you want me to talk about the second clan then? Yeah, in terms of, because there was a gap and we should say, yeah. you know, the U.S. government under the Grant administration kind of hunts down the original, the yes. first iteration of the clan, but then it pops up again in the early 20th century, and it's kind of different. The 1920s clan pops up in the early 1920s, and it's coming off of this surge of really anti-immigrant, racist feeling that's uh, roiling across the upper Midwest and across the Northeast. So it's really focused on Northern areas that have huge influxes of both immigrants and African-Americans. So all of these new cities, like places like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Detroit, have gotten all of these new immigrants, new African-Americans coming from Southern Eastern Europe or coming from the, the American South. And a lot of Protestant Americans who live in these cities are starting to get really worried. And so they kind of hearken back to the Ku Klux Klan. This coincides with D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation comes out. And they see the Klan in this uh, portrayed as this kind of valiant uh, group kind of saving whiteness and they see this as a, a calling, uh, basically. So uh, they don the same outfits, the same white bed sheets and uh, white hoods that you kind of imagine, but they look a little bit different. They're a lot more focused on patriotism. They're less violent, which makes them uh, more prevalent in society. So they mostly, there are several bouts of violent, uh, major violence, but most of the Clan action is more in the 1920s is more focused on scare tactics. So they burn crosses on the lawns of prominent African Americans who dared to move into town. And they're really focused on uh, also anti-immigrant, anti-Jewish, and anti-Catholic kind of activism as well. So that's the real focus. Um, and in a lot of northern cities and northeastern cities, the real focus is anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, depending on who's who's the newcomer in town, basically. Mm. We should add, like, clearly in early 20th century America, it's not like white people needed to be in the Klan to enact violence against mm. African-Americans or other minorities. Yeah. So the peak of lynching in the U.S. happens when technically the Klan doesn't exist anymore. Right. So, like, less, uh, you know, definitely some of my students, sometimes they, they view it as, well, you know, racists are in the Klan and then other people are not. And that's that's the dichotomy. Yeah. No, and many uh, people agreed yeah. with this, whether they right. were in it or not. We're like, right. great. <laughs> yeah. So... Tom, you've done some of your, your earliest scholarship on the Klan in Maine and Northern New England. And so in your own work, where in, in Maine in particular was the Klan active? And what was their, you know, who was joining the Klan in Maine in particular in the, in the early 20th century? People are kind of surprised to hear that the Ku Klux Klan was active in Maine. Uh, because we think of it as explicitly and exclusively focused on anti-Black racism. But that was still definitely present, despite Maine not having a huge Black population. 
But what the Ku Klux Klan did in Maine was tap into, as Ashley said, this fierce anti-immigrant, um, anti-Catholic feeling that has always, you know, had had been sort of prevalent throughout Maine's history. And so, you know, my research has been focused on the 1923 effort uh, where the Chamber of Commerce in Portland joined, you know, joined hands with the Ku Klux Klan to bring about the Portland city manager system, the council manager system, which is being voted on to change actually next month. Funny oh, enough. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's on the ballot next next month. And uh, the Ku Klux Klan is very much in the news today. And so the, who who joined it were generally people who were, you know, either ideologically committed to anti-Catholicism and to what they called Protestant white supremacy. So, you know, you had people who had been super patriots during World War One. You also had a lot of like lower middle class manual workers who used it to build connections. You know, we, we should think of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s really as something, uh, you know, Miguel Hernandez, um, a writer about Freemasonry, you know, says basically that the Ku Klux Klan is really a fraternity for, pro- for pa- ultra patriotic, violent white men, Protestants. And so okay. the same kind of people who might have joined up, uh, like the Freemasons or the Odd Fellows, those same kind of people, middle class sorts who could afford to pay a $10 initiation fee and monthly dues, were the same kind who joined the Ku Klux Klan. Interesting. So if I can ask a follow-up, Tom, and then I'm going to get something uh, broader from Ashley, but in Maine, you know, the big group of newcomers in in many cases was these uh, French Canadians. And was there increases in, in, you know, arrival of French Canadians or anybody that was a, that was kind of sparking a, a nativist backlash in Maine, or is that too simple of a, of a reading on this in terms of the explanation for the appeal of the Klan to some Mainers? There was no massive explosion in okay. immigrant in immigration from Quebec or from other parts of French Canada. It was more, I, I attribute it more to the hyper patriotic feelings of World War I. Okay. And this, the sense that if you were anything, any kind of what they called hyphenated American or anything but a 100% pure American in their words, then you were suspect. Combined, there were also many, you know, this was a period when there was still many, many Irish uh, immigrants in Maine, especially in Portland. Mm. And the Irish nationalist question was very much in the news. And Portland, you know, a lot of people in Maine had Anglo-Canadian roots. So they had roots in Canada or, or Britain, and they had felt really strong loyalty in some ways to the British cause. And so there was an Irish-English sort of spillover in some ways as well. So it really, the Ku Klux Klan was in many ways a multi-level marketing scheme. Um, uh-huh. We kind of think... <laughs> Uh, where, where, you know, you had these charismatic recruiters who worked in advertising and who were pioneering methods in recruitment um, and who were tapping into this latent, you know, hatred that was, you know, really prevalent in the United States, especially during World War One, and, you know, really, really pushed during that period. And so 
you know, when you joined the clan, you paid an initiation fee. The person who recruited you kept some of that money personally, and then some of it went to the national organization. And then you had to buy, you know, hoods and sashes and other things like this. And there was lots and lots of money to be made in the process. And so you see, you know, the leadership are often people who were highly charismatic and experienced at, you know, recruiting people to organizations and getting paid to do so. I don't know. This sounds really unfamiliar to me. Uh, <laughs> fundraising off of people's hate and paranoia as a way to enrich oneself. Man, talk about distant history. Um, but maybe maybe Ashley can can help shed some broader perspective on this, because I think many, many people might think, well, all right, the 1920s, isn't that when we have like flappers and speakeasies and jazz and the Charleston? Uh, and like, that's the culture of the roaring 20s. And so I, I'm confused, like, why is there such a, an upsurge in the clan during this time period, which is you know, again, I thought was all about, you know, Langston Hughes and the Charleston and flappers and such. No, that's a great point, Ian. And I think a lot of it is because of this, right? We have um, a lot of what the Klan and these xenophobic and racist groups build on is uh, the fact that they say, look, a society's going crazy. You know, we have, they're actively flouting uh, uh, prohibition laws and people are, you know, we have these laws in place that are meant to keep people safe and uh, keep people from being drunkards and beating their wives. And look, they're uh, dancing in the streets. And uh, a lot of the appeal to the uh, Ku Klux Klan is that it's this organization that uh, advocates morality and kind of a return to an earlier era when people weren't drunk all the time, you know, uh, which didn't exist, right? But right. Uh, that's, the, that's the promise. And I think that what Tom is mentioning, it's worth building on just the, and a lot of these clan recruiters really just build on spectacle to recruit people. They have like fairs and huge picnics and Ferris wheels where uh, everyone's dressed in white robes. And it's, you know, it's fun to join this organization and come rally with people who, you know, maybe you share some of their ideas, but you start to once you start chanting and get excited about things, right? So it's this kind of, and and they people bring their families. They pass out baby rattles with clan insignia at some of these events and um, all sorts of paraphernalia. So it's this uh, really, I mean, it's a new type of organization, new type of Ku Klux Klan uh, that is is building on some of the kind of modern marketing type things that you would see now, right? So, quick follow up: if, since it's so public and they're having the picnics and stuff, yeah. I knew I knew it was less secret than the first clan. But is the membership public then too? Yes and no. So, it's. Yes, technically the membership is private. So, and you're not supposed to say, and the people are supposed to be hooded at these things. And usually at these picnics, people are wearing hoods. But uh, there are also in a lot of the photos you see, there are plenty of people that aren't uh, masked or hooded and plenty of people that 
you know, publicly say that they're members of the Klan. And but a lot of it is kind of shrouded in secrecy, which makes it more appealing too. it's both public and also kind of uh, secret. It's this open secret that many members of different police departments across the United States are members of the Klan, particularly Detroit's police department is full of Klan members, as is Philadelphia's. Um, mm. And so, you know, it just becomes this kind of open secret that you can't really pin someone down for because technically the membership lists are supposed to be under, you know, uh, lock and key. But, uh, you know, I've seen some lists of people in these organizations. They weren't held that secretly. To build off of that, um, they they called themselves the invisible empire. Mm -hmm. And so what, you know, by that they meant, you know, anybody could be a Klansman um, or Klanswoman because they didn't have you know, women in, in the clan. So that, you know, they kind of wanted to project this, we are everywhere without having to prove it and without having to risk people's jobs because there was a lot of opposition to the Ku Klux Klan. And there were efforts to, you know, publicize membership. And there were raids on Ku Klux Klan halls by police to sort of, catch them in the act and and make them public because even if people agreed with the violent white supremacist sort of ideas being put forth by the Klan, there was this real, real major fear at the time of secret societies and Mm. of wearing masks in public. You know, this harkens back to the period of the anti-Freemasons in the 19th century when you know the this the same sort of thing the clan and the freemasons the the freemasons reject the ku klux klan but the clan you know tries to recruit as many masons as possible hmm. and so it's the same kind of idea that the opposition to the ku klux klan even if you know not even on an ideological level around like white supremacy or anti-catholicism is very much you know against this idea that there, there are secret groupings of people in society who, you know, you can't really know who is and who isn't part of it. That's a good and point. And so like uh, Percival Baxter, Governor Baxter, of, you know, of Maine, that's his primary criticism of the Ku Klux Klan. He shared many of his, their white supremacist anti-immigrant beliefs, but he, you know, really, you can read his criticism and it's it's mostly focused on, you know, we can't have people marching through the streets in hoods. Ah, so it's like tactics rather than worldview. Yeah, more okay. more so. I mean, okay. you know, the, the Ku Klux Klan in Maine helps elect a really little known state senator to the governorship in Ralph Owen Brewster. And oh, what year is that? That's 1924. Okay. It's after... Percival Baxter declines to run for re-election. And Ralph Brewster had basically made a name for himself trying to sponsoring a bill to prevent public money from going to private schools in Maine. Which I'm assuming Um, these are understood to be Catholic then. Yeah. Yeah. In his mind, they were these were Catholic, but what he didn't take into account was Bowdoin College took money from the government. Uh... And Thornton Academy took money from the government. And so all these community private schools that are functionally, you know, that are private across Maine, uh, Foxcroft Academy, um, Washington Academy, they all took money from the government to 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 educate the local population. And his Mm. bill would have banned that. 
you know, but he makes a name for himself as the the guy targeting the Catholic Church and as the loudest, you know, got voice in the room against against Catholics and and for America, hundred percent Americanism. Okay. And so he becomes sort of the Ku Klux Klan's favorite politician. Um, and that takes him into the governor's the governor's office. So can I ask, and then we'll at, we'll turn to Ashley for some national figures, but for in Maine, do you have a sense of how many people were enrolled in the Klan at its peak? I know like the mid 1920s was the peak for membership nationwide. Do you know how many Mainers ended up, you know, signing on and joining the Klan? Yeah, it, it's really impossible because to say precisely because unlike some places where, you know, as Ashley said, sometimes membership lists, lists became public, mm-hmm. that was never the case in Maine. The Ku Klux Klan's headquarters burned down mysteriously, and it took with it a lot of the, the membership lists and other things. Oh, in Maine or? You mean in Portland. Nation? Yeah, oh, in Portland. Oh, okay. On mysteriously. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, I've heard rumors that you know the mostly irish catholic uh firefighters were not in a hurry mm-hmm. to put out the fire when when it when the right. clan massive headquarters caught fire so um, wait it was on forest avenue where on forest you know yeah uh, just off baxter boulevard and where the um uh where there's a shopping center on forest avenue just past the uh, university of southern maine oh okay uh, so off the peninsula off uh, the peninsula, yeah. Near where, like, the Hannafords is? Uh, past that. Oh, okay. Uh, going out more towards, yeah, like, a little bit further out, but before Woodford's Corner. I forget the gotcha. name of the shopping center okay. that's right there. But, gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm from Portland, and I, right. I'm mad at myself for not remembering <laughs> the name of it <laughs> at fine. the moment. But, but okay. yeah, that so that where that shopping center is, and there's a housing development right there, that's where the Ku Klux Klan had this, their statewide headquarters. And they built oh. a massive auditorium and meeting space and all, you know, basketball courts and all this kind of stuff really like to stake their, you know, put themselves down in the community. And then mysteriously it burned down and, you know, it was eventually seized for back taxes and sold to developers. Okay. So, but yeah, that was, that was 1923, 1924, but you know, they still played a major role in state politics up until 1928. Okay. So Ashley, you know, you're best known as a historian of the border patrol, especially on the Northern border. And you were talking Mm -hmm. earlier about, you know, the Detroit and Philadelphia police departments were, had pretty heavy Klan membership. Were there other organizations, uh, you know, public or private that had pretty heavy Klan crossover in the 1920s that would have had uh, an outsized impact on, on politics and American life? So police departments were the main thing that you'd okay. see. Also, there were a number of mayors that subscribed to Klan that weren't necessarily members of the Klan, but were kind of uh, suspected to be or sympathetic uh, uh, with or maybe endorsed by the Klan so, and didn't back off the endorsement. So, mm-hmm. uh, so places like uh, across largely police departments, but places like uh, the state of Oregon had a large Klan membership uh, in a way that you you probably wouldn't expect that, right? Um, and uh, you also see uh, large numbers of Klan members in, in across 
the Midwest in particular. So in places like uh, Indiana. Yeah, Indiana was the national headquarters, Indiana, wasn't yeah, it? That's where, uh, that's where the second KKK was founded and came okay. to power. So um, out of uh, grassroots mm. uh, kind of backlash to immigrants coming into the state and also African-Americans coming to the state. So there's a lot of resentment uh, in kind of in this, this state that's largely rural, but has a couple of uh, major urban centers. And a lot of the rural people are uh, upset that money's being diverted into uh, the urban centers. You can see this in uh, many, many other states, right? It's a common um, kind of uh, complaint from at the state level. So most of the figures in this second KKK were at the state level. So it was okay. uh, local mayors. And that also helped the, it not become, there was no national figure to take down then. And it wasn't like, oh, the president is, you know, or the secretary of state is uh, sympathetic of the Klan. It was like, oh, the mayor of this small town or, <laughs> right. um, or the mayor of Detroit, might be sympathetic to the Klan. So it was kind of, it was, I mean, it goes back to that idea of secrecy. Mm. Um, And the Klan played on this. It was, they'd say, oh, we may have sympathy and, you know, we have uh, support in across the entire United States, 55 to uh, 500 mayors support us. We have, and they always throw out these big numbers and say we have between four and six million members. Well, I mean, that was probably exaggerated, but there was no way to prove in either direction whether that was true, right? So people believed it. So it made it seem scarier and larger than it uh, may have been, although it may have, they may have had huge number of members who were, or people that were sympathetic. So, you know, it's, uh, but I think it was, uh, those numbers are largely inflated. Okay. And I guess that makes sense why they'd want to do that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so there aren't any huge national figures other, it was more a local organization that was very organized then and had a lot of power at the local level and uh, ran a lot of local elections, local politics, which is, and you see some of those tactics today, right? Focusing more on local elections, uh, changing laws at the grassroots level. I mean, this was uh, the tactic of this early organization. Right. So if I can just jump in for a second, I think I'm probably the most high profile Ku Klux Klan supporter was probably Woodrow Wilson. He screened being a Southerner. He thought very highly of the Ku Klux Klan and he screened the birth of a nation in the White House right? and uh, for all of his cabinet while he was president. And so, you know, it kind of got the presidential seal of approval um, because it was founded and refounded on Thanksgiving night in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, in uh, near Atlanta in 1915. So right, um, right after they like saw the movie or something, right, and they were like, "This is great." Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, it was. That's part of what made it so popular. Is the 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 film sort of acted as a a vanguard, bringing being like, "Oh wow, look at how cool the Klan is! Don't you want to be part of this cool organization that protects you know white women from?" African-Americans. Right. There's been some really interesting work, I got to say, about like the far right as being inextricably bound up with the movies. Like apparently Italian fascists were heavily influenced in their in their fashion sense and like all the salutes (laughs) and everything by 
the early movies. And so mm. like, that's why, you know, the, what's now known as like the Hitler salute was apparently modeled on some like really old movies about ancient Rome and the supposed like Roman salute and the fascists were like, yes, that looks awesome. Let's do that. And they did it because they saw it in the movies. And so right. it's the same thing with yeah. the Ku Klux Klan is that right. D.W. Griffith made up a bunch of stuff about that he thought the Ku Klux Klan would have done. And he did it in the movie. And then this version of the Ku Klux Klan just ran with it. Right. Now, Ashley, maybe you know about this. I don't know. Because I know. So Wilson showed the movie and he was clearly mm -hmm. really racist. But I had heard that uh, his successor, Warren G. Harding, who's pretty much otherwise forgettable. Uh, mm -hmm. But Harding, didn't he... Wasn't he the only president who we have like a picture of him with the Klan or something? Because he was president when they did that huge march down Pennsylvania Avenue. Right. right. He was the president then. And right. uh, yeah, he there is a picture of them, to, him uh, kind of receiving or talking to Klan members. Uh, so again, there and that's the biggest moment when that you always see for emphasizing the height of this clan right the march down washington uh and that's kind of the the story you often see in this history but i think the actual story of this organization is more the story that tom is telling this local story of how the clan right. is operating in local states and cities and municipalities and how ordinary people are like, oh yeah, you know, that seems like a good idea. I'm going to go to the fair this weekend. Maybe I'll go to a clan rally, right? It's like a cool, fun thing to do in your otherwise maybe kind of boring town. Um, yeah. So speaking about like local impact, Tom, maybe you, you said that Phineas Baxter, right? That was his name, I think. Because I know the sorry. Baxters have a long family. Oh, Percival, sorry, right. Because uh, there was the guy, James Baxter, who did all the parks and stuff. And now we have Percival, the clan one. So was... Uh, well, Percival, yeah. So, per oh, sorry, go ahead. So I was going to ask, was he, was his administration the sort of peak of their impact in terms of things they accomplished? Or what was the, to your mind, the sort of not, not highlight, but shall we say the the time in Maine where they they did the most or they accomplished the most of, of whatever they wanted to do in terms of influence. Just to be clear, Percival Baxter was, uh, you know, publicly opposed to the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, and okay. Okay. So he was like opposed by the Klan. There was like a preacher in Portland who tried to get him, you know, tried to defeat him before like an early Klan preacher because a lot of the Klan leaders were, were pastors in churches. Mm. And so, and he publicly spoke up against the Klan. Um, he didn't oppose all of their ideas, but he definitely opposed those, you know, as I said, like he opposed secret societies right. and, you know, sort of this notion of, of behind the scenes governance. And so during yeah. his governorship, he, the Ku Klux Klan reached some of its peak when it, it helped the Chamber of Commerce changed the city government in Portland. The city government had been in existence for nearly a century, for about 90 years at that point. And the Chamber of Commerce wanted a sort of an executive person who could run the city without getting involved in politics, uh, sort mm -hmm. of make this make cities more like corporations, you know, how people say, run government like a business. Yes. Um, that is what the Chamber of Commerce wanted. And so the Ku Klux Klan saw that if a city manager ran, ran the government, there would be no more, they thought there'd be no more Irish teachers in the schools or Catholic policemen ignoring 
prohibition or, or you know, as they as they viewed it. And so they worked together and really drove turnout to un, you know, levels had had never been seen before to overturn the city government, uh, the, the existing city government in Portland in 1923, and then okay. elect an all Protestant city council to run the city on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce afterwards. So that's that's probably like maybe the longest lasting like political impact. Okay. But the following year, they elected Ralph Owen Brewster from Portland to become governor. And he was the politician in Maine who was the closest to the Klan. If you go to his archive at Bowdoin College, there are very nicely printed color pamphlets from the Ku Klux Klan in his archive today. And there's letters between him and the Klan. But we can't say he was exactly a member, but he definitely was backed by the Klan. And he eventually went to Congress and was, became a U.S. senator alongside uh, Joseph McCarthy and was a leading Red Scare proponent uh, decades later. Oh, okay. Okay. So the Klan gave him his start, basically, in statewide politics, which he then used to you know, turn on communism and LGBT people later on. Well, it's interesting because there's, in a way, like, so that second Red Scare you bring up, it is the second one. So it's arguably the first one that begins our story, right? There was an earlier one that most Americans are less aware of that happens after World War One, like responding to the rise of the Soviet Union. And there's all these government raids on suspected anarchists and communists in like 1919, which arguably helped fuel the Klan. And so, you know, and yet Brewster goes along and yeah, becomes a part of this second Red Scare after, after World War Two. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. The my, a lot of my research has been on someone named DeForest Perkins. He had been the superintendent of, of Skowhegan schools and then Portland schools, and then the secretary of the Chamber of Commerce, or a real estate developer, and then he becomes head of the main Ku Klux Klan. And uh-huh. he so he, he he goes from superintendent of schools to Ku Klux Klan leader in a couple of years. And he leads the main clan from 1925 to 1928. And he was involved in that first Red Scare. <laughs> so there's there's actual like direct longstanding connections between between them. Okay. So Ashley, you do a lot of work on on immigration and anti-immigration sentiment. Yes. Um, there was a really landmark piece of legislation in 1924 the i can't remember who the name of the sponsor who gets tart you know who gets associated with it but it's the 1924 really anti-immigration act which which made some of the landscape now did the clan play an important role in kind of lobbying this for this or would this in your judgment kind of would have happened anyway without the clan anyway and i guess to start off just to, to clarify how this how this law worked and what it changed and then feel free. Uh, right. No, it's a, a great. Yeah. So in 1921 and 1924, uh, Congress passes immigration quotas, basically, uh, or the 1924 Immigration Act sets up immigration quotas for Europeans. So it's the first time that we see Europeans really restricted. Uh, the act, uh, the first thing the act does is bar or exclude all Asians from the nation. So that's no Asians are allowed to come in. Uh, people from they they set up this little map area of what's called a Asiatic Bard Zone, and it stretches from basically 
the eastern part of the Middle East all the way through East Asia and anyone from those countries is barred from entrance to the United States. And then the more famous part of this legislation is that it sets up quotas for Europeans. So to come to the United States from uh, anywhere in Europe, you no longer can just board a boat, pass a health exam, uh, prove you can read, and then come through Ellis Island. You now have to get a visa in your country of origin in the American consulate or the closest American consulate. And a certain number of visas is allocated or quota numbers is allocated uh, to each country. So the uh, countries with the largest quotas are Great Britain, Germany has a large uh, quota, and Northern European countries. Scandinavian nations have fairly large quotas, and the countries with the lowest quotas are the countries that the Klan doesn't like, right? So uh, people from Russia, from Poland, from Italy, from across Eastern Europe. So the legislation- Oh, Ashley, I'm sorry. I got to ask, because I think some people are going to be like a little perplexed or confused by this. Why was the Klan, as well as, I suppose, other native-born white Americans, Mm -hmm. why were they so upset at the prospect of like Italian immigration? Or, or or Russian immigration. I mean, what's the, at least I think modern Americans today can say, oh yeah, if they're going to be racist towards somebody coming from China or Japan, I, I can understand that. But what's the, what's the problem with, you know, Italian immigrants? Or yeah. So the, and there were all sorts of things that Italians and Poles, they were uh, basically charged with not being good candidates for American citizenship. That's the kind of broad categorization. This but breaks weren't down. they white? Wasn't that enough? They're considered, uh, there's debate about this, but Uh. uh, many historians have argued that no, they weren't actually considered white. Others have argued that, you know, they were technically white, but uh, excluded at kind of the higher level. Uh, But they were definitely considered ethnically inferior. Mm. Uh, A few years before this, uh, the the eugenics movement had taken off in across the United States, which uh, was picked up in by major scientists, by or uh, social scientists, by universities across the country. Harvard had uh, members of its professors who uh, advocated eugenics, and this pseudoscience basically said certain races are superior to others and say northern european races are just inherently superior that people are smarter stronger uh, more likely to produce what they called superior stock and other races are and ethnicities say italians people of celtic races people of Asi- asiatic races or asian races are inferior so this plays into what a lot of Americans are feeling, which is that there are a lot of newcomers coming to cities and their towns who are taking their jobs, who don't speak the same language that they speak, who look a little bit different, who are eating different foods. At the local level, I see a lot of social workers complaining that the Italians have too much garlic and they're always speaking too loudly and uh, they're drinking too (laughs) much. So, I mean, it's there are all sorts of complaints, basically, that these people are different and they're coming to our cities and we don't want them there. So I have so to that's ask kind of what yeah. leads to this. And the Klan is all, you know, up in this. This is their, right. they're like, oh, of course, right? We, uh, Americans should be Protestant. And so this leads to uh, the kind of 
drive to exclude immigrants. Can I ask, because I've read like in the National Review and there are, there's the Center for Immigration Studies today, which is like a big immigration restrictionist uh, organization. And they've, they've published uh, writings where they say, well, much like in the early 1920s, the United States today just has so many Americans who were born somewhere else that really we need to kind of push pause like the United States did in 1924 and, and I guess and 21 in order to better assimilate these people. And they, they say that, well, 1924, like the immigration restriction of the 20s, it was about pushing pause and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all informed by these prejudices and ideas about racial inferiority. From where you sit as a historian of this time and place, is there any merit to that? Or is it is it possible to remove the racism from the, the immigration no, act? Because of the framers, the people who are making this law in Congress were talking about, they were saying we need a way specific. I mean, I have quotes that right. uh, some of these people like um, the Senator David Reed and the were saying we need to preserve the Nordic integrity of America. How do we keep the Poles and Italians out without seeming like we want to, right? Which uh, they they wanted it to seem legal and fair so that it wouldn't be attacked and it wouldn't be able to be dismantled. So basically what they did is they set up these quotas and they said, oh, we have to base it on some sort of science. So science and uh, statistics were really popular at this time. Mm. And so the framers of the law uh, said, oh, we can base it on the census. And they said, well, the 1920 census isn't really uh, set up right right, uh, correctly yet. So we'll base it on the 1890 census. So they chose the 1890 census specifically because it was the year before large numbers of Southern Eastern Europeans started coming in. They said, oh, the 1910 census has some discrepancies. It's not really working. The 1920 census isn't 100% available. Uh, We'll use the 1890 census. It's the last one that we know is 100% credible. Uh, Oh, it happens that just the quotas are the ones that we wanted. (laughs) Ah, yes. Funny how that works. um, (laughs) But in, you know, not even behind closed doors, but in uh, public committee meetings, they're saying things like, how do we preserve the Protestant integrity of America? How do we keep the Catholics and Jews out of America? How do we keep the Russians out? And, you know, so they're not mincing words when they're talking about this stuff. It's, it's pretty brazen. Are these folks, and this is, I guess, what makes it, I genuinely don't know, because, you know, I think that there are so many people who are anti-immigrant who are not in the Klan, but so is this, does the Klan play a role in sort of mobilizing support for the 1924 legislation, or is this kind of happening without their? I think so. I think to, it it shows the people who are uh, planning and framing and coming up with these laws that they have a large scale support. The main framers of the law, Albert Johnson, who's a congressman from Washington. Oh, Washington that was the State. name, the Johnson Reed Amendment. Yeah, Johnson okay. Reed. So it's okay. Albert Johnson's a congressman from Washington State, and David Reed is a the senator, he's from Pennsylvania, and they are the people that usher it through Congress, basically, and come up with a lot of it. Uh, They work with other, a lawyer from New York City, they work with other nativists who have, who are kind of high profile, but are not 
they're not members of the clan, but I think that they, I would argue that they see the huge uh, popularity of the clan and the clan is hugely um, anti-immigrant. Uh, they emphasize, they talk about immigration a lot. Their initiation ceremonies, they actually call naturalization ceremonies. Uh, um, so, I mean, that's part of their thing. <laughs> it's this idea that you're going to kind of reinforce your Americanism. Uh, so they would have seen this and seen that, well, you know, we're going to be able to get this passed in a lot of places. So this is going to be, this is going to have widespread support. And it did. Okay. Now, not everybody was a fan of the Klan, obviously. So I don't know, Tom, I, I know very little about this. And so do you know, in your, in, in your scholarship, if you found who is speaking out most prominently against the Klan in, in Maine? The, by, by far the largest voice is the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, there's my master's thesis. It's it titled, uh, it, it takes a quote from the Louis, Louis Walsh, Bishop Louis Walsh, who called the arrival of the Klan a, a revolution. That basically if the Klan and the, you know, had its way, there would be a revolution against Catholics in, in the state. And so the, the Catholic Church is very, you know, it mobilizes against the Klan. There are street battles in Maine, in Biddeford and Socko. You know, the Ku Klux Klan tended to have its greatest political power. And oh, wait, the do, are these stuff. like fist fights? Are these like yeah. the cops have to be called? Like, yeah, the, these are like fist fights and, okay. and cops being called, people getting arrested between mostly like French Canadian and Irish Catholic workers in Biddeford and, you know, the more middle class Anglo native born suburban kids from, and not just kids, suburban people mm -hmm. from Saco. And so you see this kind of thing between like Auburn and Lewiston or Biddeford and mm -hmm. Saco or Rockland and Camden. And so that's sort of where there's like actual, you know, to, to varying degrees, like actual opposition. And so the problem was, is that the problem was that in Maine, it's so overwhelmingly white and Protestant in demographics at this time. And, you know, so much of the political power is held by white Protestants that there really wasn't like a united opposition to the Klan in Maine in the way that you see in Chicago or other places where there it's more multi-ethnic and there's like a larger voting block of Catholic voters and African-Americans who are able to join together and push back. Um, okay. The Klan really has its way politically in Maine. And, it, you know, the Klan actually, it's, its greatest enemy is itself, <laughs> as is so often the case with these right. kind of movements. Um, and, you know, it makes some very bad political decisions, which partially leads to its collapse. I guess I wasn't sure, especially since when you think about like New England, uh, some aspects of New England history, uh, we see that clearly there was there was anti-black racism in New England from the beginning and it never you know entirely left. And yet, arguably, like, for example, some New England states never disenfranchised black men when they when they set franchise in part just because the black population in some New England states was so low that they just didn't really threaten the existing power structure. And so many New England whites just don't seem to have been that preoccupied or troubled with it, right? Like an occasional black voter isn't going to kind of upset 
white supremacy. Whereas clearly in like South Carolina or Mississippi, they would, right? If there's if there's enough black voters. So I yeah. thought maybe the Klan might in Maine, since you describe it as so overwhelmingly white and Protestant, you could see an alternate scenario where the Klan doesn't catch on because who cares? There's just, there's nobody really challenging the status quo, but apparently that did not happen. And is this because there's enough Catholics to upset the native born Mainers or there's just other anxieties or, or appeals in your judgment? Yeah. So, I mean, anti-black racism, whether it, there were a lot of black people around or not was still the core driving ideology of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. um, and so like sometimes the Ku Klux Klan in Maine or whatever gets sort of dismissed as, oh, they were just anti-Catholic. Mm. Um, but, you know, I found a speech from DeForest Perkins where he lists the number one goal is ban interracial marriage in Maine. That that was the number one legislative priority of the Klan in 1925 um, at, when it was at its peak. And so, I, you know, I don't want to dismiss the anti-Black racism. Sure, but sure. in terms of organizing, yeah, the, the number one, like, on-the-ground enemy is the Catholic Church. And and as I said, like this is tapping into generations and generations of anti-Catholicism among Protestants that go, you know, it goes back to the, the colonial period and, and goes back to England before that. And so, you know, what we see just like in earlier periods, you know, there's all these conspiracy theories that the Catholic Church is planning a revolt and that, you know, the Knights of Columbus is a paramilitary that's going to be, <laughs> I know, it's so ridiculous. But I mean, they again, wear swords, so right? look. And, and that the Catholic Church was teaching disloyalty to the American government, right? And that you couldn't be loyal to America and the Pope at the same time. This was right. This was a common belief on top of sort of, you know, as Ashley said, the the garlic and the noise and the you know drinking alcohol they're it was gonna all flood kind of america with polka music so mm -hmm. i mean something clearly has to be done yes right exactly uh, right and, and i think the irish nationalist question also you know plays a big role because there's an account about what maine was like during world war one in which it says you know nowhere in the united states was more pro-war during world war one than the united than maine Huh. Which makes sense, given the close connections to England and Canada that, you know, coastal Maine has. And so there was this intense hatred of what, what they thought of as the Hun or the Catholic. And Catholics had to go way out of their way to prove their loyalty because Catholics were immediately seen as potentially disloyal subjects who would, you know, if, if the Pope told them to, would, would launch a counter-revolution in a heartbeat. Ironically, Germans are not a target for exclusion in the 1924 legislation, proving once again that like racism is dumb and arbitrary, you know, not that yeah. there's like a good discrimination, but like theoretically, if you're going to be super patriot and angry about World War One and like who killed your relative, you would at least exclude German immigrants in 1924. There were some drives to do that, but oh, okay, okay. The, the people who were the, basically the framers of the law wanted it to seem fair. So they were like, you know, we'll let in these Germans. They, they, they tried to figure out how to get Great Britain's quota higher than Germany's and they mm. couldn't. So they're like, we'll just stick with these. We like the Polish and Italian numbers here. So so there was concern about it, but not enough to make them change the quotas. So you're right. 
basically. Yeah, Germans were not seen as like ethnically inferior okay. in, in, right. in the same way right. that like a, a Russian Jew would have been seen as ethnically inferior. You know, and okay. the name I think I just want to bring up here is some Madison Grant. Yes. Oh, uh, yes. A, an important. Right. Yeah, he made it, wrote a very important book, which was then used by Nazi Germany. Was um, this the passing the pass- of the, the okay. passing Go ahead. of the great race? Yeah. yeah, yeah, the passing of the great race, and this idea of Nordicism, that the northern people of Europe were of north of you know not Russians but of Western Europe were you know ethnically superior, and you know that's the that's a lot of the basis for some of the scientific racism that actually is. You know, that's the the highbrow version of the sort of ethnic hatred um, going on. Oh, man. The publications from like the turn of the 20th century. No, they they definitely say uh, (laughs) what what they're thinking in a way that you're like, oh, well, were they careful to talk about whether it was racist or not? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, they're totally they're all up there like I'm doing this because it's racist and I'm a racist and that's what I'm doing. Yeah, Uh, I think that's that's a. an important thing is that like today racism is it's like the worst charge right you right. can level against somebody even the most racist people would not want to be called racist right. but in that period racist anti-racism was a fringe belief and that's what makes like the ku klux klan so you know we think of them today as so extreme but actually in their period they were really normal mm-hmm. and you know like uh there's a great uh, academic named Kathleen Blee, who did a lot of research uh, interviews of like senior citizen clans, clans people in Indiana. And they, you know, in the 80s, seven, I think it was the 80s or 90s, when they were at the very end of their lives. And they were like, yeah, of course, of course, I was racist. It's the way of life. It's just, it's everybody was and, you know, sort of like the normalization of racism. And so I think today we've gone Thankfully, we see racism as as something to be condemned. And um, whereas then it was, you know, if you weren't racist, then you were extreme. Yeah. Even the modern clan today says, like, we're just pro-white, you know. So speaking of which, so Ashley, I think since we spoiler alert, racism did not end in the 1930s. And yet I know. Surprise, surprise. And yet the second edition of the Ku Klux Klan pretty much faded from American life during the, the 1930s. So why, if, if, if it's not most white American minds had been changed, what, what was the reason for the, the collapse of the second clan? Well, a lot of, I think it's locally, I think, Tom, you'll have a story about Maine, but there's a lot of local breakdowns in politics and a lot of their goals uh, in the 1921 and 1924 Immigration Act, a lot of their immigration goals are being met in that sense. Uh, and at least in the Midwest, you see uh, local uh, people starting to be more worried about uh, the Great Depression and be worried about uh, whether they're going to be able to feed themselves and people are losing their jobs. There's no longer uh, people no longer have the dues to pay into this uh, kind of Ponzi scheme that uh, mm. Tom is bringing up. So I think the depression really had uh, gives people other things to worry about and they do start worrying about, but they continue. I mean, people continue to be concerned about immigrants, particularly whether they're taking American jobs, 
uh, they're just not paying into or an organization uh, because they're they're saving that money to feed their families to pay their rent. Uh, so that's kind of the um, on the ground. I think across the nation, that's what happens uh, in the largest sense. Mm. And wasn't there, maybe I'm misremembering, I thought there was like a sex and scandal and a corruption scandal at the heart of it too? Or am I, was that not like a national thing? And that was more just one chapter. Tom, do you want to talk talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there that was the, you know, as we said, Indiana was, okay. was one of the most important places, probably the most important place for the Ku Klux Klan. Even though they were based in Atlanta, like they, they Indiana was their, their like heartland. And the head of the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana, he raped and murdered a woman. Um, oh, while, wow. Uh, I, okay, I forgot the particulars. Okay. <laughs> and uh, along with other men, he he had captured, they, they kidnapped her, and he tried to force her to marry him, and they raped and they murdered her, this young woman. And this was national news, and obviously it was uh, really contrary to this idea that, you know, that the Ku Klux Klan were these pious, church-loving, all-American do-gooders, you know, to see like one of the most prominent Klansmen in the country become a, a murderer um, was, was you know, definitely decreased their, and this, this was not just him, like, you know, you look through newspapers, even in Maine in the 1920s, and you see Texas Klan accused of lynching and, and these sort of things. And so, Though they weren't as violent, you know, the the Ku Klux Klan of the 19 of the 1860s and 70s was hyper violent. It was a terrorist organization, essentially. They're not quite as violent in the 1920s, but they, you know, the light was shined very bright on them. And in polite Protestant society, you know, they they got a bad name in, in some mm-hmm. ways as hypocrites and for white Protestants being labeled a hypocrite, that's one of the worst things you can be labeled, right? And so, yeah, and, and you know, you sort of see later on in the 1930s, the legacy of the Klan is, you know, Father Charles Coughlin, the mm-hmm. famous radio priest who, you know, sort of captures the niche audience that, the, you know, that spoke to the Klan previously. But Father Coughlin famously uh, comes to power or uh, talks about how he was harassed by the KKK, right? He's this, uh, and he uses this, it's under question now. So historians aren't sure whether he actually uh, was his uh, family uh, was, I think the story is that uh, a burning cross was put on his, uh, the lawn of his first early church. And so, and he tells the story over and over and over again. And so he's using this legacy of, you know, oh, I've dealt with hatred. I've dealt with racism. Let me tell you and kind of tap into this. So he's, you know, tapping into some of this and, but espousing the same uh, types of uh, racism himself then. So you think it did it not happen or was this like a false Flag, uh, so I, yeah, there's actually operation. another podcast that I listened to about <laughs> Father Charles Coughlin. Uh, was this that, behind the bastards? No, it was radioactive. Oh. It's about Coughlin. And, oh, that's a good title. Yeah, and they um, they basically investigated whether this happened or not, and decided that it probably didn't. That he probably hmm. is using the clan to show, give himself this kind of sad persecution story. Right, because he's Catholic. And of course, yes. the Klan would never have liked Catholic. Would never have. But he's using a lot yeah. of the same rhetoric, right? right. right. <laughs> Jewish bankers and so, and oh, so yeah. forth. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Maine, 
I argue in an article that I'm working on that the Ku Klux Klan's like one of the major appeals is that it's kind of seen as a legacy of the progressive era, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of something we wouldn't normally expect to hear. But uh, the Ku Klux Klan say defended the primary system when there was real concern that maybe we should go back to conventions to nominate candidates. It defended rural Maine when wealthy people, wealthy interests wanted to buy up all the electricity and export it out of state. And so it, I argue the Klan got its popularity to speaking to some of the issues of, you know, radical middle class, rural Mainers especially. Hmm. But what brought down the Klan was basically it turned on the Republican Party. Because uh, so I think one thing to be really clear here is that the Ku Klux Klan was found in both major political parties. Hmm. It was not specifically Democrat or Republican in this period. And um, there's always some talking points from people, from Republicans to say, oh, the Ku Klux Klan is just a Democratic Party organization. In Maine, it was very much a Republican Party organization. And in you know Mississippi, it would have been all Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happens in 1926, right before Ralph Brewster is reelected as governor, Burt Fernald, the senator from Maine, who had been senator since 1916, Great name. he dies Bert Fernald, what a great, you know, from Poland, Maine. <laughs> um, he dies in uh, unexpectedly, and his there's a special election to replace him. And the Ku Klux Klan backed um, a guy named Hogden Buzzle, who had been state, <laughs> oh who had been state senate president from Belfast, <laughs> and Buzzle lost. Um, Percival Baxter had also run in that election. And neither Baxter nor Buzzle are elected. And then uh, a guy named Arthur Gould from Aroostook County is elected. Uh, Gould Medical Center in Presque Isle. Oh, okay. And so the Ku Klux Klan just can't tolerate Gould getting elected. He's not really good on prohibition. He's There's rumors he maybe he's married to a Catholic. And so they they just can't. And he's super rich. And the Ku Klux Klan is very suspicious of the super rich and the super poor. And so Ralph Brewster declines to to endorse Gould. He's the sitting governor, and he, a Republican, refusing to endorse a Republican. They file ethics charges against him that are are proven, you know, without proof. But they, you know, they they basically try to take him down, and it ends up being that people like him even more because he is seen as anti-Klan. And so he wins even like Lew- even Lewiston. He he wins every major city in the state. And including a lot of Democrats vote for him because he's seen as anti-Klan. And hmm. and then in 1928, Ralph Brewster challenges Frederick Hale for U.S. Senate for the other Senate seat. And in the primary, even though he's a sitting governor, he loses 75-25 in the wow. primary. Wow. Uh, just and the hmm. the newspapers at the time all say the Klan is dead. We never, we didn't expect the Klan to die so quickly, but it's 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 a spent force in Maine politics. Basically, the Republican Party turns on the Ku Klux Klan, and the you know they have no political home anymore. And so then the it you know that combined with all the other factors that we've talked about lead to its you know decline, and and eventually it's almost virtually almost its disappearance. Interesting. From small things, all from all from the demise of Senator Burt Fernald. 
Oh, we know. <laughs> this is, oh man, this is why history is so great. From these odd events, you get great consequences. So thinking, uh, if we would a bit about about all this more broadly in terms of your your respective scholarship as well from this era. So it's it's clear that the Klan is not just some fringe group in the 1920s. But thinking about your respective work on, you know, issues like the Border Patrol or, you know, c- city governments, uh, how if you had your way, you know, and, and more Americans read your books and, and thought like you did, how should we be thinking about the Klan in relationship to more, quote unquote, mainstream organizations in American life in the 1920s? Ashley, we'll, we'll start with you. So how is it? I think that it is a mainstream organization. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> it's a good way to start. It's a good way to start. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's leading to, it's this large, you know, it's this large organization. It's kind of like a kind of side to a union almost, right? So mm-hmm. people are getting some of the same benefits that they, and ideas that they might uh, kind of camaraderie, um, have like the Freemasons, right? It's this organization that, but that has very clear policy goals and they get a lot of them passed. Uh, and they're, I mean, at that level, they're successful in um, at least making it clear that there will be widespread support for immigration uh, control, that there will be widespread support for board patrol, things like that. Ni- the 1924 Immigration Act allows a million dollars for the creation of a border patrol and the KKK members would have been um, all for this uh, in theory, uh, in practice, maybe less so. Uh, there are instances in is even in Maine where workers on the uh, northern border, uh, I don't know if they were members of the Klan, but they were uh, working people in that region uh, were really angry that the Border Patrol came to their region and were angry because it disrupted their labor force. They And they didn't like the idea that there was federal power uh, on the, coming to the border. So in theory, the idea of restricting immigration, having a Border Patrol was a good idea, but in practice, maybe less so, right? <laughs> Borders for thee, not for me. Right, uh, exactly. So you okay. see a lot of that coming out uh, and a lot of opposition and particularly in Maine and Vermont, uh, mm. actually, where people there are like, we're not the problem. Look, you need to be restricting in places like Buffalo, in Detroit, in El Paso. Those are the issue. Those are the places where people are coming in. This is this is not what we meant when we said border patrol. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, what about you? How would you frame the Klan, you know, position it in relation to non-secret organizations, you know, how does factoring the Klan in shape how we should think about these other movements for, 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 you know, good governance, et cetera, in American life in the twenties. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to factor in that, you know, whenever we hear calls for good governance, there's always a racial, ethnic, and class component to that. Mm. Right. What we would, you know, what they considered good governance meant eliminating the voices of immigrants and working class people from government, right? That only certain people should have a voice. And in Portland, where, you know, my research was focused, participation in municipal government peaks with the vote in 1923, the Klan city manager question. 
and then it drops to negligible later on in the decade. And there's, you know, the city manager system basically eliminates any chance that regular people, regular residents will have any voice in their city government, which continues for decades and decades to go, come. And some would say even today, you know, echoes even till today, which is why there's a reform movement to change the city manager system. Hmm. Um, you know, if you look at Mainer magazine today, it has it has a, you know, a picture of a Ku Klux Klan march on the cover um, saying 99 years, which is, you know, it's been 99 years since the city manager in Portland was put in place. Oh, wow. Um, so I would recommend anybody going out and reading Mainer, the free magazine, if they can access it online yeah. or, or in person. Um, but I, you know, I think the other legacy is, you know, removing democracy, generally removing democracy from everyday life and insulating people with wealth and power from, from accountability. That was very much what the Ku Klux Klan sought to do and what they did in, in Portland, especially, but not, not only. And so, you know, it's kind of this interesting system where the Ku Klux Klan worked to eliminate democracy in Portland, but they supported the primary system over conventions. Which is kind of a, you know, it is an ongoing contradiction of the progressive movement in general, right? And you can't, we can't generalize them, but like they really did in some ways, they made American governance much more accountable to voters. But at the same time, a lot of progressives said, and so therefore we need to really limit who votes and we got to make sure that like supposedly right. racially inferior immigrants or illiterate people or, or, you know, other people can't participate to make sure that the voting pool is, is comprised exactly. of trustworthy citizens. Yeah. And that's why, you know, um, as you know, Ashley talks about, that's why they built a border service and try to put up mm -hmm. walls where there hadn't been any, because it was very, very much about limiting who could be an American and what it meant to be American. And so, you know, the, theirs was a very narrow vision. Thankfully, uh, that vision is not in the majority today, or I'd, I'd hope, um, <laughs> at least in the opinion polls, it says that even if our politics don't represent that today. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think you you look at it and it was, they were, the Klan were radical middle-class people who distrusted the rich, but hated the poor. And I think oh, that what's that book about like the radical middle or something like that. Yeah. That, that I actually huge. have it right in front of me. Yeah. Um, uh, it, but yeah, it's a famous, it's a famous book about the progressive era called the radical middle class. And uh, yeah. And so that's, you know, I didn't mention um, in an, that the Ku Klux Klan like tried to run the industrial workers of the world out of Greenville, Maine in a very <laughs> famous moment because they were trying to fight for, clean logging camp. And so, you know, they had these really interesting relationships with pro-democracy forces, as well as fighting both sides. Right. So I have a final question for both of you before we start wrapping things up and promoting your work, of course, but it's going to be kind of a, an honor, a counterfactual, but bear with me thinking about, so the Klan is the most iconic of America's hate groups in our past and present. Uh, so with that said, so had the second clan not existed, 
in the 19 teens and 20s. From where you sit, would it have mattered? Put another way, is there anything that the Ku Klux Klan accomplished or did during that period of time that other organizations in American life weren't doing anyway? So how much did they matter? Uh, we'll start with you, Ashley. Yeah, that's a great question, actually. It's, uh, and that's something I, I mean, I would say that the Ku Klux Klan is just making very visible the hatreds and anxieties uh, that many middle to upper upper working class Americans had about the poor, about immigrants, about African Americans coming to their regions, about prohibition and or you know uh, about drinking and that those things were present. Uh, it gave them an outlet, perhaps made them more organized, uh, allowed more people to feel that the anxieties that they might be feeling were legitimate and valid, which, yeah, I think may have allowed for politicians to capitalize on this, this grassroots upswelling. So I think that they were important, actually. They're, they're tapping into something that's there, but they're giving it a brand, a rhetoric, a legitimacy, even if it's a secret legitimacy, the idea that, oh, well, we have this band of Protestant uh, brothers and sisters who support us, even if our politicians aren't going to, right? So yes, I think that they were important and as and they show us a reflection of what people were really feeling about immigrants and they stoked a lot of feelings about immigrants, Catholics, Jews, African Americans at the time. Hmm. Tom, I would echo what Ashley's said and I I mean I think you could look at the Ku Klux Klan as in some ways analogous to the fascist movements that were going that were going on in Europe at the time you know they looked admiringly at Mussolini and said <clears throat> hey you know look 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 what he's doing even if we don't like his uh his you know that fact that there's catholics involved we we can respect the authoritarianness of it and that, so i yeah i would say it sort of distilled many of the worst parts of the american experience into an organization, you know, between the the grifting and the open hatred and, you know, the violence that they did inflict, in, in, especially in the South, where there were, you know, few restrictions on night riding still and Jim Crow and all these sorts of things. And so were there other people doing these same things? Yes, but no one was doing exactly what the Klan was doing. And it attracted the angry middle into, you know, building and uh, building a movement, which, you know, had potential to go much further. And so to develop into a kind of uh, hyper patriotic fascism, which it didn't exactly, it was it was actually the US government was worried about it so much that it was banned basically during World War Two, and its its leadership arrested and surveilled. Oh, I didn't know and that. So Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yep. It was uh, its leadership was because there's there's scenes of it in the 1930s where they're meeting up with actual Nazis. The remnants of the Klan was were meeting with the German American Bund mm. to uh, to you know talk about their shared hatred of 
of uh, ethnic and religious minorities. So they were ironically seen as anti-patriotic, <laughs> despite being mm. the mo- you know seen as the most patriotic, seeing themselves as the most patriotic. I mean, this is when they were much, much smaller later right. on. But it reflects this uh, virulent anger that was so commonplace in like the post-World War I period. Hmm. As we wrap up, Ashley, our listeners who want to read more of your work and hear more about your scholarship, what would you recommend? Uh, so my book is Bootlegged Aliens, Immigration Politics on America's Northern Border. And it actually focuses on a lot of the stuff in Detroit and in Michigan. So which was one of the number one places for undocumented immigration, but also a, a big place of clan activity. And uh, that was published in 2020. Um, more recently, I had an article come out that looks at the entire northern border and actually does talk about Maine and New England a little bit. And that's called Militarizing the Northern Border, State Violence and the Formation of the U.S. Border Patrol. And that's in the Journal of American History. So that's those are Very the two cool. things I'd suggest. <laughs> yeah, great. Tom, how about you? Well, my master's thesis is available on the University of Maine Digital Commons, so you can just access it there. Uh, just look up my name and uh, you'll find it. And it's called A Real Social and Political Revolution, Nativism, Class Conflict, and Urban Reform in Portland, Maine, 1840 to 1923. You know, you can never start, you know, I intended it to write about the 1920s and then it just blew up from there. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> is often the case with historical mm-hmm. research. And I published a chapter in a, a University of Illinois anthology called, uh, the, the book is called Where Are the Workers? And it's about the main labor mural controversy of oh. uh, t- 2011 after uh, the first election. Of Paul oh, this was when Paula Page wanted to like take down the mural because it was like communist or something. Right, uh, exactly. Yes. And so I, co-author and I wrote a chapter about the book as a whole is about labor, about the place of workers in public murals and 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 public history. Our chapter is on the uh, the mural crisis and how that actually helped you know take down some of the anti-union agenda of uh, Paula Page. You know, sort of how public art being threatened could inspire people to organize in other ways. Okay, excellent. Well. Links to those will be shared on all of our social media feeds. So Ashley Johnson Bavery, Thomas McMillan, thanks to both of you for coming onto the show. It was great speaking with you. And hopefully we will talk again. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's our show. Be sure to rate, review, and share us far and wide to help the Mainly fandom spread. And join us again soon as we talk about the career of Lydia Mariah Child, a towering 19th century writer and anti-slavery activist who, for all her accomplishments, is today best known for a children's poem today associated with going to grandmother's house for Thanksgiving. That's next time on Mainly History.